Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, I have uh, Max Page with me, and he's the author of Why uh, Preservation Matters. Uh, Thank you for joining me uh, today, Max. Thank you, Danielle. So tell me about your background. Sure. Well, right now I'm a professor of architecture at UMass Amherst. I actually grew up in Amherst and live in, and I'm I'm, uh, doing this podcast from the house I grew up in. So that's a preservation detail that might be of interest. Yes. Um, I'm actually temporarily as well on leave because I am the vice president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, which is the union of uh, public school and college educators in Massachusetts. Okay, very, very interesting. Um, and um, so what, what drew you into preservation? You know, um, that's a good question. I mean, I studied from undergrad on in um, US history and urban history. And my very first book um, did not start as a historic preservation book, but it was, a, it was called The Creative Destruction of Manhattan. And I was really interested in the tearing down and rebuilding of New York City in its kind of most intense growth in the early part of the 20th century. And how, what imprint that left in, in people's uh, minds and in, on the culture and how they how they thought about it and increasingly found that the question of what is what was destroyed what's removed what's the what's the effect on this city and this culture by losing so much of the past and how they thought about that became central and actually i wrote one chapter very specifically about um, the museum of the city of new york and also um, historic preservation projects early preservation projects in the city yeah yeah that's um yeah, I think that's an interesting, interesting discussion because what what gets what what the decisions that get made impact you know the the whole streetscape and the whole the whole community um, of what you know what is saved and what is um, what is um, you know eventually demolished. There's um, there was a you know during the urban renewal, which is probably later than than the period you're discussing, but in Lancaster City, um, there were a lot of beautiful buildings that were destroyed in to build, you know, these concrete <laughs> structures. Right. And um, there was one building where the, the um, historic preservation trust is now housed that actually 
became became the saving that building became the start of that organization uh, because they wanted to to tear it down to build a parking garage and now the parking garage is completely around this building um, but they um they did save it but but they saved they they saved it not solely because of the architecture but because of the story of the people and right. and that sometimes helps you know helps when the architecture won't convince <laughs> that's right yes so so tell me um about your book um why why preservation matters sure so um you know as we were um heading towards the 50th anniversary of the national preservation act i was asked to write this by yale university press for their series why X matters. So I said, let's talk about why preservation matters. So the book is is really, um, in, a, in a way, kind of a, a, a gentle manifesto for the future of historic preservation. And I make the, the argument on it on, in a, a series of chapters about why preservation can be so central to some of the that this could be preservation's moment because it could be so central to some other important um, developments and movements we're in the midst of, whether that's a more equitable economic development or um, dealing with the difficult pasts in our midst um, and uh, addressing climate change. And so that preservation, which is frankly um, in most urban planning area work um, is still to the side, um, is still kind of seen sometimes as an afterthought, um, but I argue it could be really central. It can be, and it has been in certain places, really central to all those efforts. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I, I do, I, I've had several people on the podcast, but I do think that there's a, especially like with looking at climate change and the environmental impact of construction. Yeah. Like, I don't feel like the green building people talk to the preservation people and vice versa, and they have a lot more in common than they realize. Right. No, that's very, that's very, very true. It's, it's, it's in a way getting better, but I still, there, there's a, a fascination with, you know, um, you know, new materials, right. new, new renewables, and not recognizing that a centerpiece of any more sustainable world has to be uh, reusing, reusing old buildings yeah, and building buildings, buildings that will be able to last for hundreds of years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very much. So the uh, modern preservation movement began with the passage of the National Preservation Act. Um, how, how has this changed preservation in the past 55 years? In, in, from your perspective. Yeah. You know, we do say that, and I probably say it too, the modern preservation movement, it's really the federalization of preservation because preservation goes way back in our history, very early um, in, the, in the Republic, um, preservation was an issue, obviously like saving, you know, saving Independence Hall. Right. And I argue, and not just me, but many others argue that that late 19th century and early 20th century, many of the key organizations and kind of approaches to historic preservation get founded. That's one of the reasons I was interested in writing about preservation in New York, New York City, because many of the organizations really become ones that influenced later. But obviously the 1966 Historic Preservation Act was really important. It did kind of create a federal infrastructure for doing historic preservation. So it, it uplifted um, the preservation as a centerpiece of uh, how we do urban planning and how we think about um, you know, our, our rural and urban landscapes. Mm -hmm. And it gave a vehicle for us all to be um, both cataloging you know, places that are important 
and also to some extent, although far weaker, I think than most preservationists would like, um, gave us some levels, some vehicles, some some power um, right. to influence what gets saved. Yeah. But I think you know it's it, but it's as a compromise legislation, and frankly, as part of our federal system, I think we all agree it's just not nearly as powerful as we might like. Yeah, yeah, and I think a common misperception is that the National Register is actually protective of buildings, and it's not. It's just just recognizes that as an important building that's Um, that's correct yeah yeah and i that i think that's a common misperception and i don't know if i should do do a lot to dissuade it because sometimes i think people that think they can't do things (laughs) right right (laughs) well it becomes the basis of course for places like you know you know local preservation ordinances usually rely on right national register lists and like so it has that role but certainly you know, I've often said to students, you know, you go through the whole process, you get voted on, you get your brown brass plaque, and then the next day they can tear it down, Right. you know, with no, with no uh, hindrance. Yeah, yeah, local, being involved in, in your local uh, planning and, and um, your local um, politics is, is very important, especially for preservation, because those zoning ordinances are what, what do protect the buildings. Um, so the I, I've noticed a trend of people wanting to um, tell the story of of everybody in in the country, not just the not just the people who were living in the big houses, um, and and that that has definitely gained momentum in in telling that story and telling our di- our difficult past. Um, how how is that impacting preservation efforts from from your your point of yeah. view? Yeah, I think it's one of the most exciting parts of preservation over the past you know, a couple of decades, and I think it will continue on as we continue inexorably becoming a much more diverse country. That's just happening. Whether whether certain groups or people don't like that, that's one of the remarkable and I think amazing and wonderful things that is happening that the United States is becoming more diverse, which means not just celebrating that diversity, but also confronting in place, in places, physical places, the difficult past and you know and difficult past sometimes seems like it's a euphemism sometimes the violent uh, vicious uh, past that we have in our history that's not to say that, that there's not great things but it's important to be able to confront those and I think um, there's just some remarkable work that's gone on at the federal level with the National Trust but also grassroots efforts um, at, at the you know in, in cities across the across the country. I've been involved, for instance, in the um, Shaco Bottom project in Richmond, downtown Richmond, which is, um, you know, was the largest or the second largest um, trading site for enslaved peoples in the 19th century. And it's, and it's partly been forgotten for that in the wider world, because it was largely erased. Um, you know, train lines came through, they, the I-95 goes right through, right over an African-American burial ground and the mm-hmm. sites of those um, trading centers, I think that's what we have to call them. And um, there's just been an incredible group there has been pushing and pushing and pushing to tell that story and set aside the space. And they have now had success in having that area at least you know, declared as a historic site. And there's now plans for a museum and it's just changed um, the understanding of the history of Richmond. And it obviously it can be done with words and museum exhibitions, and that's all important. 
Um, but it's also important to actually uh, pr protect the places and bring people to those sites. And part of the reason in that case is to actually go to those sites. They've set aside the, the land that was once the, the burial ground and you can barely hear yourself sometimes because I-95 is cars are rolling over. Oh, yeah. And that's part of the story. Why is it that it just felt completely acceptable or at least acceptable to those in power to say, yeah, of course, this is a nothing zone. We'll just put, you know, eight lanes of highway over this site. So that becomes part of the story, which you can only experience if you're in the place itself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's really powerful. And I, um, had on, and I, I talk about it often. So regular listeners to the podcast will, will know that, um, but the, um, um, slavery in the North was a book that I read last year, the year before. And, um, I, I say that he was a, a political scientist writing a psychology book that didn't realize he was writing a preservation book because uh -huh. he talks about our, our collective memory and how that's erased if we don't acknowledge it, where slavery is all around in the North, but yeah. because we weren't acknowledging those places tied to it, people start to forget it. And, and it was going back to, but it was, it was very much talking about places and being, that being tied to places. And it was very, I it really struck me as like, this is really a preservation book because yeah, people do forget it. People move away, people die. And if people aren't continuing to tell those stories, people don't remember. Right. Um, and so I, I think that that's, I think it's very important to have those places that, that tell the story of, of everyone in the country, because it's important for everybody to see, see themselves represented in our history. That's absolutely right. And, you know, um, one of the things, there's actually some exciting, you know, grassroots work going on in, in uh, the Boston area where I spend a lot of my time now partly to get rid of some of the offensive monuments. You know, there's the, there was a recreation of the, I don't know what they call it, the kind of the kneeling slave, and Lincoln standing up above him um, in, a, in a quarter of Boston, where people said, why is this here? Why is that image, the image of the, of the Civil War? Um, and so that was taken out, but then there's alternative stories being told, like at Faneuil Hall, it was a competition, although very controversial, about um, about you know the about who was buying and selling enslaved right. people there. And so there's a, there's a really robust conversation going on. I'm not sure it's you know sometimes it's controversial and deeply frustrating to people right. how slow things move, but a place that has um, you know partly prided itself on its abolitionist past also needs to confront the um, the deep-seated right. segregation and racism that is that has beset that city it's changing also becoming a much more diverse place but those stories need be need to be told yeah definitely definitely um, what are what are some of the 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 downsides that you see for the the modern preservation movement or even the the um, what was the federalization of preservation yeah. Well, you know, I think all the things we've just been talking about are not really about architectural beauty. Right. And yet, I think the bulk of preservation work um, remains people saying this is a beautiful place right. and we need to save it. And obviously, I'm a believer in beauty. And actually, I end the, end the book talking about the importance of beautiful places um, as a way of provoking more democratic attitudes, more a sense of the common good. So I am all for beauty, but I, I think that some of the, um, 
the things we've just been talking about are still, I wouldn't say the fringe, but they are not necessarily a center to our daily practice and frankly, not central to um, kind of the, the National Register and its rules. Um, you know, interpretation, telling stories about places is not a requirement. Right. Um, uh, you, you get your plaque, that's it. The plaque often says, this building is on the National Register of Historic Places. So some of us, you know, Daniel Bluestone at Boston University has argued this as well, that um, we should, there should be a requirement that, that to get that honor of being on the National Register, the owner, whether it's city, town, or individual, needs to tell the story. Um, I think in terms of if we're going to be central to that environmental movement, yes, the, the green building types have to come, come towards us to historic preservationists, but we also have to consider our um, sometimes, not always, but sometimes overly precious dedication to you know, pure preservation. And, um, and that we have to be willing to say, look, it's better to have the building, the, the, the carbon that's in that building and make some um, adjustments that may not fit the perfect integrity that we, that we aim for. So those are just a few ways in which I think our national register policies um, were not imagined in a way. I don't want to like just blame right. them in 1966, yeah. but we're not imagined for the kind of priorities we have today. No, I, I agree. And, and I do think that there is, that was one thing that struck me um, reading your book, prepping for this was the, the discussion of, um, you know, not the focus on historic fabric as much, which is, you know, something that when I'm doing my consulting work and going to evaluate properties, that's, you know, the first thing that I look at is the historic fabric. So now that's going to change, you know, some of what I am looking at to evaluate um, a property, but um um, I, cause I hadn't looked at it that way. Cause I had looked at, you know, the historic fabric as being the most important, um, the most important feature, yeah. but maybe, maybe we need to kind of make, make the, the preservation a little bit broader and a little bit more inclusive. That's right. You know, I would just actually was walking by, um, just a few blocks away is the, the Emily Dickinson museum. Oh, yeah. It's a remarkable, um, place and I love it and support them, but we have a good ongoing conversation about how much energy and money is dedicated to kind of recreating the exact fabric of when Emily Dickinson may have lived there. Right. And, you know, I often, and I understand it in some ways, it's, it's what people travel here mm -hmm. from all over the world to come to Amherst. Right. Stand in a room that's exactly like Emily Dickinson experience, and yet that's impossible. Much of the furniture is off of the Harvard Library, and you know it's hard. It's hard to imagine recreating that. And sometimes I feel like let's accept where we are, even right. clear things out, <laughs> and let people's imagination roam and spend the energy on kind of um, you know both personal, individual like tours, but mm -hmm. also digital. Um, imaginings and artists and the like, and really um, just accept the distance we have from history. We're still in the place and much of the, and the building is still the building, yeah. but rather than, um, you know, pursue what is always just out of reach, which is basically going back to the past. Right. Let's spend our energy helping people use their imagination and, and focus on the poetry itself. Yeah. Again, I love that organization and they yeah. have done some remarkable things, but um, that's yeah, just, it's, just an example of a debate we have. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a debate to be had because um, not every not and not every historic building can be a museum. And and my. Um, 
I, I tend to go back to, you know, buildings need to be useful in order to be preserved. And so if they're not, if they're not being used for, for a purpose, they're not, they're going to be, you know, either demolished or demolished by neglect. Um, so I, I really do, I do from a practical standpoint, I feel like buildings need to be used. And if that means, you know, having, I think, did I see in the book that there's like, they do like writing workshops and things like that. Absolutely. And so like those kind of things are definitely like that brings people in and brings people like it, it builds a, it builds a community's relationship with the buildings also. Absolutely. Right. No, actually that museum is an example of also adapting, the um, many of the ideas I think a lot of us um, in progressive preservation have been interested in a lot more bringing in artists, having musicians who've written written pieces inspired by Dickinson poems, allowing writers actually to to be there to work to be inspired by the space itself. So there's absolutely um, that side as well. Yeah. Um, so what what trends or challenges do you see see in preservation? Well, I think we've talked about some of them. Um, I think, I think in, in many ways, preservation needs to have greater power, um, and some of that power comes from legal changes. And I've suggested, you know, some of them, whether it's, you know, requiring interpretation or, frankly, giving more more um, police powers. In many communities, all we have is a demolition delay. That's it, you know, um, and if it gets focused on, all, you know, like local ordinances all get focused on what's the what's the appearance from the street. So these are limited. These again, take us back always to what's the building architecture, what it looks like, as opposed to do we have to save that building, whatever it looks like, because of some really important things that happened there. Um, I, I still continue to believe, though, there's great opportunity. Um, if we are both flexible and also it's both on the one hand more flexible about the kind of things we do as preservationists and also more forceful as a grassroots movement. I think one of the things I talk about in the book is that when it um, in, in the earlier years in the in the 60s and, and so there was a greater feeling of preservation as a social movement. Mm. And then, it you know, part of the part of when it becomes the, you know, you know, state preservation ordinances and the National Preservation Act it becomes professionalized. And there's a lot right. of good things that come from being professionalized. But I think what's exciting now in the Richmond, you know, group that I've been in, involved with um, is, is that it's, is that, that um, there's more of a social movement feel. And I hope that we can continue that and be open to that, like supporting those local groups, local individuals that are demanding that their stories be told um, and that their landmarks be marked and that that becomes the kind of a, a feeling much more of a social movement. That's the, that's the, where the real power will come from. Yeah, I, I agree. I, um, part of my consulting work is usually because, you know, we don't have any enforcement power <laughs> yeah. is um, meeting with developers and other people in the community to kind of try to come up with solutions for, for these historic properties. And, and I was just talking with someone this morning and I said, you know, we need to reach out to the local historical society and bring them in and bring, get them to bring other people in because the more the township sees that there's people that are interested, the more they're yeah. going to listen to us <laughs> because if it's just the preservation is being, you know, they'll, they'll just think, Oh, that those people are just the people who chain themselves to buildings. <laughs> so. Well, that's yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think I think having that that social that that having having the grassroots is very important 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So was there anything that as we were talking that you thought of that you wanted to share that maybe I didn't think to ask you? Um, I'm not sure. You know, I just did just want to relate, you know, that how even as we're talking about the social movement, we also need to use that power to make some legal changes. And I give an example in the book about polio, the industrial city nearby was one of the ones, the paper making capital of the United States and a small change, a small legal change. And let's, let's say in, have we had a carbon tax or carbon caps in which preservation that is living in historic buildings or historic cities um, essentially um, would mean that the, the inhabitants, businesses in those cities would gain benefits because by doing that, by living there, and I yeah. will say Holyoke is one of the poorest cities in Massachusetts, those people living there are doing us all a, a, a climate service right. by inhabiting older buildings and frankly also using um, canals that are 150 years old to generate electricity today that powers that city. If we made a small change in which we rewarded those people and businesses you would suddenly see preservation, I would think, rise very powerfully because just the simple calculation would be, wait a second, if we move to Holyoke, we're going to get all these benefits. Right. Yeah. So I do think there's, um, while we, we slog along and we make the case for why historic buildings matter, there's also legal changes that could kind of tip the balance very, very quickly. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, a, like a, um, the, uh, I know in Pennsylvania, we have like, I think they're like re redevelopment tax credits for moving into like socially um, impoverished neighborhoods. Um, but that would be the same idea, you know, but just in a historic building. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Have they, are, have, are they doing that in? Well, there's, there's a lot of efforts around climate change and there has been proposals around carbon taxes and carbon caps, but it has not yet happened yet. Um, and so this is just, this is an idea that I think, Whose time has come. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. Uh, where can uh, someone purchase your book? Oh, well, I will, I mean, directly from Yale University okay. Press um, or your local bookstore, or if you want to do it online, don't go to, I won't even name it, <laughs> go to bookshop.org because that's a network of independent bookstores. We have to support our independent bookstores. Okay. Um, so I, that's what I would strongly urge. Okay, we'll make sure we have those links on our on our website for Great. someone to go to. And then, how can our listeners contact you? Oh, just contact me at my UMass address, M Page, one word, at UMass.edu. Be glad to be in touch. Okay, very good. Well, thank you so much for for joining me today. I enjoyed our conversation. Thanks, Danielle. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.